Welcome to another episode of 12 Million. I am Jenkins. I am Akbarmajid. And on today's show, we are joined by Dr. K. Edwin Bryant, who is a highly respected senior pastor, professor, academic, published author, and corporate strategist. Thank you so much for um, joining us, Dr. Bryant. Hey, thank you uh, for allowing me to be on 12 Million. Listen, I'm really excited about the opportunity and just chopping it up and having a real deal conversation. I'm looking forward to glad that you join us. So, you know, before we kind of get into the the, the nitty gritty, just want to get an idea. Where did you grow up? Um, I know you went got your PhD in Australia, but yeah. uh, but what how does that work out? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I take the first hit. So uh, I grew up in a small city uh, west of Cleveland called Elyria. Uh, about 52,000 people, predominantly white, uh, uh, for the most part, a retirement space. Uh, grew up there uh, all 18 years of my life, elementary, high school, all that stuff, uh, and then found myself in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, just about probably lost my mind. I had never been around that many uh, black communities before in my life. And so mm-hmm. it was just a wonderful experience. My eyes were open. My point of view just changed. And just, I tell you, develop a great appreciation beyond what I already had, you know, for my people. So uh, that's kind of my, you know, origin story. I started on uh, the Lake Erie, you know, about five minutes from my house. Uh, and that's kind of where my journey started. Uh, and led me to Nashville, then back to Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and then now, of course, through the many different things I do, uh, find myself throughout the country. So when did you when did you get the calling? Or when did you know you wanted to become a pastor, <laughs> as they say? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, Grand, so, my grandfather was a Southern Baptist minister, so I understand. I, <laughs> yeah. You know, so uh, for me, it started early. Uh, I was 13 years old in high school, mm-hmm. um, battling with this whole notion of what it means to be called. Now, I love God, of course. I was the only one probably in my family. My brothers went uh, the church with me. My parents would drop us off, right? Uh, they go to Sunday school, then they hang out on the corner afterwards. But I would kind of hang out throughout the whole service. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had, you know, that call about the age 13. And honestly, uh, it was just something to deal with. I uh, was the first person in my family that probably took faith that serious. Uh, and so it was strange to me. Uh, trying to, you know, reconcile this so-called call to, you know, serve people. And then I'm 13 years old. I want to have fun. Uh, and I found myself throughout high school doing the exact same thing. I was negotiating uh, on a lot of occasions, just my sense of identity. Uh, not that I was, you know, uncertain who I was as a person. I was trying to make sense of my place now since I had professed this call of ministry, as they say. You know, so I still, man, I was hanging out after the basketball games. Uh, I was still drinking Little Kings like everybody else uh, and still trying to figure out what it meant. But the funny thing is, you know, I was doing all that stuff uh, and people would come up to me and say to my friends, y'all should be more like Kerry. Uh, He's giving his life to the Lord. He's being a preacher. But I was just cool with it. I was real, you know, smooth. I didn't get crazy when I got drunk. I was just real calm and collective. So the funny thing is, I still had the high school, if you will, career and the fun that most high school students had. But at the background of my mind, man, I was still trying to negotiate what it meant um, to say yes to God fully because that's what I was struggling with. 
I would imagine because so I I went to I went to Catholic school um, in like I think seventh fifth seventh and then I graduate from a private um, school private Catholic mm. school from high school um, on Sundays I was when I was, I would stay with my grandmother and around the corner was a, another, there was a church that w I would go to church, you know, and then afterwards we would hang out in the parish and we would just, you know, chill. It was just, we didn't think of it as, um, we didn't think of it as, as, you know, trying to be anything other than teenagers. But what yeah. I thought was the most important part about it was, is, and, and this might, I'm curious how, you know, how you see this is, okay. you know, when you're that young, um, sometimes your younger, your, your, your friends don't understand that like that there's nothing uncool about hanging out with in, 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 in this setting, right? There's, it, 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 I think it's almost <laughs> about just making a choice of what kind of person you want to be, you know yeah. what I mean? And this this environment allows you to kind of be you and be be you know without this pressure of that comes from um, you know the streets of of you know I grew up in Newark so I the okay. streets of Newark was not exactly the safest place for a black man at that point in time. Yeah, but, I uh, think uh, you know for me, just if I'm catching your drift is that, you know, I was still uh, just living life. And of course, my parents, family, friends, everybody, honestly, um, they kind of protected me. Mm -hmm. uh, they tried to make sure that I wasn't around things that I need to be around. If I was, they made certain they put a hedge around me. So I was almost like untouchable. And I hate to say it in that term, but that's kind of how it felt looking back on it, mm -hmm. that they saw that I was willing to make this you know, commitment at such a young age, you know, and I have to admit, don't laugh at me. I was wearing, you know, ties to school and I had, <laughs> I had suits on and I was probably mimicking or probably replicating something I saw or a mentor that probably impacted me, which is probably my childhood pastor. But at the same time, they just really embraced me and allowed me to be, like you said, authentically myself. And mm. that's what kind of allowed me to live in both worlds. And at some point, probably around my sophomore year, I found it where I wasn't kind of compartmentalizing. I was kind of, I had merged, you know, what I thought this call meant, who I was as a person, right. and then how I want to be connected to my friends. So I found the sweet spot early on, and that allowed me to be able to not be hypocritical, allowed me to be not judgmental, allowed me to kind of really be uh, objective to best a, you know, 15, 16-year-old kid can be. Uh, and just respect people for who they were. Mm. Were there any, um, were there any people that you were like looking up to as role models at that moment in time? Yeah, uh, for me, uh, I always looked up. I guess if you look at a moment of history, I always looked up to uh, Martin Luther King. But mm -hmm. more immediate, my pastor, uh, my dad. Uh, quite your, frankly, uh, was your dad in yeah. the, like a was he a pastor or was he involved at the church uh, at all? No, uh, his dad was a pastor, okay. uh, but he uh, was marginally involved in church when I was younger. 
you know, they would go to church, you know, what they call that Christmas, Mother's Day and Easter. So they would, you know, sign up and they'd go during those times. But um, my dad wasn't not deeply religious. Mm. That happened later in his life. Uh, but for me, uh, watching my dad, my dad would work four jobs. And that's not an overstatement. I would see him, mm. you know, go to one job, leave, you know, not have a vehicle that, you know, two family, uh, two parent home, one vehicle. Uh, my dad would be the one who would walk to work, get off work, walk to another job, walk home, eat, go to another job. And I'll be honest with you, what it did for me, it created at an early age that desire that I can do anything I put my mind to. And his work ethic, if nothing else, gave me what I needed to succeed and do all the things I'm doing now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, also, I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of gives you teaches you what a work ethic you know teaches you work ethic you know like um when you're that young like i you know my mom was for the most part a single mom raising us and Mm. i would see her she you know in the morning break make breakfast we'd send us off to school we'd get home by the time we came home she was coming home from her first job to go to her second job. And then after her second job, she would come home and she would study for college. And, you know, those are, those, you know, that, you know, it didn't resonate to me with me then, but like, I think later on in life, you kind of, my mental picture of her sitting at the table when we go to bed while she, she would uh, be studying. I still remember these gray big thick books that she would be sitting there at the table with and I think that's something that um, we undervalue a lot of times sometimes just those little moments that kind of impact how we you know who we become later on and you know it kind of like we're the sum of all these little moments in life and how we how we choose to put them together is really how we who we become you know so that's good. So I know you, Absolutely. Consider, you consider yourself a, a New Testament scholar. Yeah. <laughs> so, so can you can you explain that in a little bit, a little detail? What what is it? What does that mean as it relates as you see it? Okay. So, uh, I, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I did my PhD in Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, crazy. Um, I was in my master's program and my professor, my New Testament professor, uh, you know, he just said, you just seem to have the facility for languages and mm-hmm. you just really seem to get um, what the New Testament is really about. And based on the paper I had written about mm-hmm. slavery, he says, I think you probably need to pursue that uh, and do it at a doctoral level. And so I chopped it around, thought about it. Uh, and so in 2009, uh, I made the commitment and went to Sydney, Australia, uh, the only person of any type of color descent, uh, African or African-American, uh, on campus of about 26,000 people. Wow. Uh, went from Dayton, Ohio, Sydney, Australia, uh, and studied. So uh, my technical degree uh, is ancient history, mm-hmm. and the specialization is New Testament and early Christian Christianity. Mm-hmm. So what that means is this. I have a uh, proficiency from about 200 BC to 200 AD, but I focus more so on like the rise of the early church. Uh, I love you know, Roman history, but my kind of focal research points, they would call it, uh, I focus on 
uh, slave existence uh, in the earliest Christian writings. Uh, and I talk about how to give positive valuations or positive identity uh, to people that not only in that world, but the scholars who studied that world would mute and just kind of wash away uh, anybody that was an underrepresented voice. So my professor and my PhD supervisor, and this is crazy, um, a white male grew up in, uh, I think, West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, parents were deeply uh, connected to uh, the South, Mississippi, and those type of sentiments. But the Lord did something with him where he just had a heart uh, for the Black community. It's been that case. And so uh, he brought me on, and he started this new way of reading a text and it's called uh the comic philosophical tradition so you know you got these things like the moral like you know plato and aristotle and people like that right but what a lot of people don't know is there are a lot of underrepresented people in you know the ancient world who also wrote like epictetus who was a slave Mm. so what we did was we focused on people who were oppressed we focused on writings uh that were philosophical by ex-slaves and we went to the point of society where everybody gathered. And that was called the stage where the plays and the mime. And guess what they were portraying on stage was a lower class. So my research deals with how to uh, deal with positive identity at the bottom, how to rise and deconstruct and implode and get rid of systems that are trying to keep people in a particular place uh, and then kind of just get rid of the visual uh, representations of what power is. So like hmm. the billboards and the coins and all that stuff back then, man, it was it was brutal. Wow. There would be a picture of, you know, a goddess Pox on a coin with her foot on the neck of a foreigner and a sword in her hand and signaling that there's no other path, no other way out. Whatever plot you have in life, that's where you have to stay. And that's kind of the focal point of my research. So Paul, um, so New Testament scholar for me means, you know, he had the proficiency of the languages and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it means being a black male, uh, bringing credibility to underrepresented voices that existed in the ancient world and kind of showing the correlations now of what's happening in our world, uh, racism and everything else you can think of. And there's a lot of similarities of how power is organized to keep certain people in their place. Powerful, very powerful. So, so like I said, it's very powerful, particularly, I mean, I think it's, I mean, particularly now when, when people are being inundated with so much imagery, Mm. um, how, so how do you, you take that in, in, integrated with kind of the intersection of what's going on today with social media and you know, the, yeah. the need of representation. How do you integrate that into kind of your practice today? Yeah. In fact, I have, uh, I have the Bible in one hand and source magazine in the other. <laughs> <laughs> That's know? awesome. Um, you know, and there's no way to fully engage, you know, the biblical text unless you're engaged in culture. I think that's where a lot of faith people mess up. They get so drilled down into their faith story, understanding what their particular religion means, but they disconnect from culture. 
Mm. I see a difference. Mm. I see that I not only have to, and allow me, I guess, if you will, alliterate, not only uh, hear from heaven, but I need to hear from the earth. I need to know what's happening in the world. So what I kind of do is take what I've learned, my proficiencies, and I try to bring them, as you stated, to the mediums that's driving everything, social media, the pic, you know, the pictorial renditions of what culture is, uh, how we as a people are pictured and how we're observed, right? Uh, the challenge of having to be uh, or to look a certain way uh, and then perhaps the challenge of having to have a certain response. I think all those things on social media are causing a large widespread disruption just in culture. Uh, people who are trying to, I think, honestly, after pandemic and now that we're in this new space, I don't even think people are really trying to figure out Christianity anymore. I think people are trying to figure out culture. I think people yes. are trying to figure out where do I fit in? The world is a lot bigger and now at my fingertips. And shoot, is faith really needed? Um, mm. Do I really need, you know, Jesus the way I thought I did? Can I have Jesus online and I can catch whatever else I want? You know, so I think these social media journalists, um, these citizen journalists, I guess you can call them, uh, that phone has allowed people uh, to take a different vantage point. I think the challenge, however, is that the image, the visual representations of what we see, and I'll just narrow it to that black community, we got to be very careful that we're not falling into a trap that I would argue that's purported by those in power. Uh, mm-hmm. So we got to be very careful uh, that we're not falling into a particular imagery to fit in, but we got to be willing, be courageous uh, to maintain that sense of heritage, culture, uh, and rise to the top. Mm. I, so I, I was on your Facebook and uh oh, <laughs> there was a there was, <laughs> that's right. I, I found you out. Private one or <laughs> I'm not meta yet. I'm not meta yet. Uh, <laughs> um, you posted a quote, which I really, I hadn't thought about it until you posted it up there, which is, hmm. if we examine just one year in the life of Black Americans, the events in 2020 paint an undeniable picture of vast disparities along health, social, economic, educational, and justice lines during those 365 tumultuous days. Man, <laughs> you just pretty you pretty much summed up like the last three years and, and oh. counting. Tell me what, what what like where did that realization come from? It came from just um thinking through uh, where the world is uh, and uh, my space as a person who I feel, you know, I've been in this thing you call ministry uh, for almost 35 years. So for me, I've worked a lifetime in most people's eyes. Mm. Uh, So I'm looking to make a pivot uh, in a way where I'm more engaged in culture, helping people manage things that are happening. So for me, I was just looking, and one thing I probably would have added that'd be by environmental injustice, that Mm. when you look at all the different things that are happening in our world, and then you look at our communities, uh, we are constantly being labeled and identified as 
you know, the target group or the underrepresented or the uh, people who are penalized, I would argue, for the inequities that are happening. I just saw it and said, that just can't exist anymore. There has to be someone to speak up. There's got to be someone to speak loud about this because I just, honestly, I looked in the faith world and faith leaders just kind of stopped talking about this stuff. I don't know if it was COVID that did it. I don't know if someone that's funding them said quiet down. I don't know what it was. But what I do know is, is that just the voice to help reset this stuff and just the sentiment of just that old antebellum South rising up. Now, I know this is not a political show, but there's so many sentiments that have, you know, come to surface. Uh, that have made people feel like they can just live any kind of way. And I think those things have made it into mainstream society culture and in legislation where gerrymandering and all that kind of stuff, all those things to me are crowding upon the social public space and somebody's got to speak up about it. And that's really what drove me to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you also about, so um, in, in your bio, um, yeah, there's, there's, it says here that you kind of are a strategist with a passion for advocate for underrepresented communities, right? But it also says that you kind of work with non-black communities to un- to get them to under, and this is interesting because I, I, <laughs> I don't get to talk this, this kind of conversation much. What kind of stuff are you like? What What are you doing with non-black communities to kind of help them understand? Like, because I, you know, I know I have I have many friends, white, black, the whole bit, right? Um, but I do feel like sometimes it's almost like they want to ask questions yeah. about certain things, or they want, but they, you know, they they almost feel defensive about like. Like they don't know if they they can ask. So what is it? How can you know? Tell me about your work with non-black communities. I guess. Yeah, I, I think it probably started with uh, my own family. Just to be quite honest, uh, if you were to go home with me on any given weekend, you would see the United Nations. Right. You know, so my family is represented of many different ethnicities and cultures. Uh, so for me, at a very early age, it was easy to try to uh well my my niece um that if anyone saw her on the street they would think she was an average white girl but Mm. she's my brother's daughter uh so i learned early how to negotiate conversations and share different uh dialogues that were forthright and engaging so i remember being in uh santa monica sitting at i think a shop called lemonade and i was outside and meeting with a publisher uh, Michael Brown had just been um, gunned down by uh, the police department. And they asked me, what should my response be? Mm. They said, I feel sympathetic that that should not have happened. But the guy said, I just don't, and this is a white gentleman, he says, I don't feel my people who are around me would understand that that shouldn't have happened. They will be quickly say that he probably was doing something, he didn't have any business, he mm probably was, you know, did something to bring the attention to himself. And he says, I just know that's not right, but I don't know how to deal with what I know should be said and done 
and then also then deal with the fact that I have to address another section of people who feel that he probably got what he deserved. So they would ask me, you know, what should I do? And I said, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that it shouldn't have happened. I think that's the beginning point is I help other communities who are non-Black be able at a basis point, be able to acknowledge that what happened, particularly against the Black community, have been acts that should not have happened. Mm. I think that's the starting point. But then what I also try to do is help them understand that it's possible to not disconnect from your white privilege, mm. but still be sympathetic. Because the fact of the matter is, um, I can't think of any white person who wants to just get rid of the inherent privilege they have. Uh, I can go in Kroger tomorrow, as I do after I leave the gym every day. Mm. And someone will look at me that's I'm checking out on a self-checkout counter mm. and they will look at me as if I'm about to steal something. I only got three items in my cart. I can't imagine that someone who is white wants to give up walking in the store, picking up something, eating it while they're walking in the store mm. and then perhaps not even pay for it. I can't imagine they don't want to give up that privilege. Right. But at the same time, I believe that there are people who are sympathetic who can negotiate, uh, even if it's a fine line, what it takes to be sympathetic, what it takes to live and be honest about the Black community and the things that are happening. So that's kind of what I do. Mm. I listen. I listen to their heart. I take those pastoral skills. I apply them in a cultural context. I listen for the gaps. And then I help take the gaps and I apply them to things that are happening in culture that are undeniable. And it's, it's really just the issue of challenging someone that you there's no way you can compartmentalize seeing someone lose their life, or better yet, a mother grieve over her son. Mm. So I take the most basic principles, drive them to a point of understanding, then help them see how our system is set up to give people who look like me uh, an unfair shake in life. And so it becomes a very forthright conversation. So I allow them privilege to ask questions, but I'm equally one who pushes back and says, hey, look, you know, I get you're inquisitive, but I know the difference between an authentic question and someone, you know, just really uh, trying to be, uh, uh, well, I, I can't cuss on this show and I probably contentious. shouldn't cuss. <laughs> yeah, contentious. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I'll say it for you. <laughs> so if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. K. Edwin Bryan, uh, senior pastor, professor, academic, and also the author, author of a, a book called Chariot, The New Cultural Conversation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that book? I know you, you touched on it a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about kind of your work in, in, that, in that book? Yeah, so, you know, honestly, uh, I was led to uh, write Chariot uh, based on all the things that I had been saying. So that quote you saw on Facebook uh, is just a small expression of the many things that I had been seeing. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I just hadn't seen anyone really speaking up. But admittedly, I had a call to not only ministry at a young age, but I really felt called uh, to do the same type of work that Martin Luther King had done. Uh, so I've always had that deeply ingrained in me. Uh, I believe that Martin Luther King, uh, and I honor his work, particularly, uh, I love his book, Why We Can't Wait. 
but I think maybe one misstep of the civil rights movement was that you cannot legislate love. You can't make people care and respect others. And so chariot uh, with the words R-I-O-T capitalized riot. Mm -hmm. uh, I go after uh, the fact of leaving no stone unturned, uh, talking about our black women uh, in corporate America uh, who are brilliant enough to help drive profit, profit margins, but at the same time, you know, isolated to the cubicle. Uh, I go from there to talking about uh, my own childhood experience of racism. Looking back, third grade, Miss McClellan's class, I miss some spelling words like everybody else. She asked who wanted to retake the test. I was one of one black kid in a classroom of about 23. Uh, I raised my hand to take the test. She said no. She allowed other white students to come up. I didn't know it was racism then. Mm. I didn't know how to interpret it, but looking back now, that's exactly what it was. Mm. So I took my own stories that I had engaged. And so I'm not speaking about something that someone else, something that happened to someone else. I'm talking about my own experiences with racism in America and just the desire to not let it stay the way it is. We've rehearsed a lot of conversations, you know, mm. uh, the rhetoric, the status quo, when something big happens, we're talking, but you know, I'm at a point where I want to move to action. Mm. Let's dismantle. Let's deconstruct. Let's get rid of this. Let's attack what it really is. And I think, honestly, racism, really in the right term. I think we probably need to start addressing it more so as white supremacy and mm. dealing with the issues of white privilege. So that's kind of what Cherry goes after. It's a riot. It's raising um, a different type of rage. You know, protest is good, uh, but Cherry goes after progress being better. Mm. Do you think that, um, I mean, how, you know, I, you know, I'm 55 years old and it's, it's funny that you mentioned this, you know, your story, um, of what was obviously racism, but as, as a kid, you don't like, you don't, you know, we're not children. You know, the best part about being a child is that, <laughs> everything is everybody's your everybody's the same everybody yeah you know what i mean and we unfortunately lose that as we get older but we don't know that what we're experiencing at that moment in time is racism and i always I always said i think america needs like a gigantic therapy session because um we all as you know one of the, the first guest on this show was a woman by the name of Frida Thomas. And one of the first things she said to me on the show was, um, she's like, I want to see what I can do for you. She's like, because mm -hmm. black men in America ha have suffered a lot of injustices for so long, not only amongst the non black but even amongst them the our own people because you know think about how heavy that weight is to have to carry especially in the 50s 60s 70s you know i'm not saying it's not heavy now but it's different it's, That's right. it's so much different now how do you think you know do you think it's better i mean do do, mm. do we think any any headway has come um, cause I feel like we've just traded 
you know, heavy rock for heavy log now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you I think you're right. Um fact of the matter is, and this is one of the reasons why I focus on listening to non-black sentiments about this whole subject. And just be honest. Mm. You know, oftentimes we are not in a position to control legislation, right? Uh, so it becomes challenging. So as things develop, as history moves forward, yes, there are things that are, you know, better. We can see more improvements. You know, you can almost live wherever you want to. Uh, and if you are fortunate enough to do it, then you probably have to deal with a neighbor, you know, two or three houses down that doesn't want you there. But nonetheless, you know, it's a different, you know, scenario. But I think you're right. I think what's problematic is that even though there have been great achievements, I think as a whole, society has kind of, and I would say the Black community in particular, um, has kind of forgotten some of those stories. Mm. They've kind of forgotten uh, some of the challenges and the struggles. Um I'll be honest with you, uh, talking to my own 15-year-old and eight, almost 18-year-old son, mm. uh, sometimes in me mentioning things that happened in civil rights and versus what they hear and what's going on in the world now, uh, there's a slight disconnect between them understanding the value of all the work that has happened to get us where we are. And I think it's hard for them to carry that on if they don't understand the value of where we've come from. So I think Mm. We have to kind of create and educate ourselves. And I think that's the challenge with critical race theory is that you have uh, on one scale, whites who are trying to whitewash a story because they're trying to spare a new generation of white children from some sense of social shame. Mm. But then on the other side of this challenge, because you have a black community that fully doesn't know their culture. So they're allowing themselves to be called into something answering the things that they shouldn't and not really fully knowing the deep sense of, you know, and we all hear this all the time, Queens and Kings, but it's real. You know, we have to understand where we've come from. And I think that gives us the ability to keep carrying the weight to not feel like it's a lost cause, mm. but then be very thoughtful about where we're trying to make the impact. And I think that's where it is now. Social media. I think it's important. Uh, we see things happening in our world where, you have now a Supreme Court justice is being considered an African-American woman. Uh, we've got to make full use of those things and look beyond the political lines, look beyond particular rulings on special, you know, this case or that case. We have to think about the advancement of our people. Hmm. Uh, and then how can we do that in a way that help pushes others? We ought to celebrate each other. And I think that's where the weight comes in that we're not celebrating each other enough. So what you're doing on this podcast, <laughs> the people you're bringing on, the amplification of these stories and the successes of our brothers and sisters, I think is phenomenal because it takes that uh, for our communities to rise above a world that seemingly has kind of gone back in time. I can ride down the street from where I'm broadcasting from right now and I can count five Confederate flags on my way to the main intersection. Mm. That mm. is the type of world that we're in where those type of sentiments have resurfaced, but we've got to drill down and be excited about who we are. I think that's how the way becomes bearable. That's how the new story and the new horizons are built. 
people connect and they look at those spaces, they pry them open and they invite other people into it. I think that's where the story is. Yeah, I know one of the things uh, Darren and I talk about is that, you know, as, as a as a group, I think we need new PR, a new PR agent. Because I think we, <laughs> we, we've allowed too many people to kind of create our optics, right? And I think yeah. and that's one of the reasons why we started this show is to kind of give a new light or not even a new light, but just shine a light on the things that brothers and sisters are doing and have done yeah. for years, right? Um, and I think to your point is trying to find that balance of celebrating ourselves but at the same time, dealing with the harsh reality of that racism or white supremacy, as you say, as I believe, I agree with you, exists in, in, in this real, um, and we have to kind of balance or find that yeah. balance to, to, to deal with both. Um, but how do you think we, we do that, right? In a sense of yeah. fighting white supremacy, but at the same time, you know, educating our youth, but also letting them know that the sky is the limit. You know, one of the things that, you know, growing up, we used to hear is you could do anything but be a black president. But we've seen that now, right? So, uh, yeah. Uh, so the sky really is the limit with limitations, but how do we balance that? You know, I, it may not be popular, but I'm going to be honest about it. I think the way to balance it is that the only way to unravel the situation is to bring in, if you will, the culture and subcultures who help tie it up. Mm -hmm. I think we have to find, if they're not what I call chariots, find challengers. Mm. People who are non-Black who acknowledge, hey, I don't want to disconnect from my privilege. And the you know words we hear often, I'm not a racist, but we have people who say, I really believe that what's happening in, you know, black and indigenous people of color communities, the things that are happening that should be spoken out about that are not, I want to stand up for. We have to connect with communities who are non-black to be able to help us unravel it. I know that may not be a popular statement, but I think it's honest uh, that we will need people who help create it to help unravel it. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't have the power to rise above it, but I think in this context, rising above it uh, may be the easy way out. Let's go for the harder reading. The harder reading of the story would be this. Let's go inside the system. Let's, if you will, implode it. Let's set some strategic charges that doesn't damage everything else around, but let's just bring down what doesn't need to stand. And I think if we enlist people who are non-Black to help us with that, I really believe that we will see the next wave of what we call equity and equality happen. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, like, uh, I used to kind of work with this group that kind of tried to create um, change within Wall Street. And what their thing was to do wasn't to kind of like uh, um, they weren't trying to destroy the system. What they decided okay. to do, to your point, was to enlist agents of change within the system that you could ally yourself with. And this is probably not unlike the same way, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, 
I th- it, it would be nice to be able to have allies who are well ready to use said white privilege to help further the goals of you know that that we're trying to achieve and i think um you know i think it's a little easier that's kind of a little easier today than it used to be because for social media and because we have more access points to that's right these individuals than we ever had before um yeah i definitely agree with i i agree that there you, you know we do obviously have our own work to do on it but right. you know i think if they want to be allies if they want to if they really understand the plight then they need to be ready to use their white privilege to help us further the goals that we're trying to achieve and there it is i think you got it right there i'll never forget my white phd professor i sat in his office in sydney australia and this is what he told me Mm. he said your book is exceptional my book was picked up by what they call tier a press brill uh in the netherlands mm. and uh when he gave me my final evaluation from my outside reviewers this is what he said to me he says your book matters mm. he says but my white colleagues will make you think it doesn't mm. he says it's your responsibility to maintain your voice to continue pushing forward with your scholarship but I have to admit, just thinking about that in this conversation that I'm thankful for L.L. Wellborn, because had he not pushed me uh, to go beyond the limits, a white man, he wasn't African-American, he's white. He helped me to understand, if you will, the game of the academy, you know, Mm -hmm. what people will try to do. Uh, He showed me emails that uh, people, his colleagues had written about me and didn't want me in the program. And he. I didn't understand why he showed me, but after I got my degree, I understand why he needed to show me mm-hmm. to help me understand that what I had acquired was not um, a casual thing. You know, New Testament scholar, not just Bible, but also ancient history. I had gained something that that guild didn't really want me to have. Uh, <laughs> and the story and the research I had couldn't be contested, could not be ignored. The research, he said, was flawless. He says, but the problem is you're black. He says, so as long as you can manage that reality and still not lose your story, he says, you'll have a long career. So I'm thankful for having that relationship. And that's what gives me the courage to talk in non-black spaces because Mm. I've been the beneficiary of non-blacks helping uh, to support my work and what I'm doing. I think it's very important that we, that we do that, right? I think because you know, the way I look at it is we're entering, want to be at the global table, not just yes. at the white table, right? I mean, how do we become right. part of the global conversation, right? And the yeah. world is getting smaller and smaller, mm. um, and we have to figure out how we are part of that globally. And, you know, so I, I think your approach definitely helps us kind of strive to be at that table. Uh, so, um, as you know, our, our, the name of our show is called 12 Million, which is inspired by the Richard Wright's book, 12 Million Black Voices. So one of the things we ask all our guests is there, yeah. is there a particular book that you're reading um, 
or you recommend? We know definitely your book, Chariot, but outside of that, is there another yeah. book that you recommend to our listeners? Yeah, so there's a great book uh, by a young scholar uh, by the name of Dr. Marcus Jerkins. Um, he got his PhD from uh, Baylor University and listen to the title of his book on Fortress Press, largest Christian publisher on the planet. It's called Black Lives Matter to Jesus. I'm listening, I'm telling you, it's a great work. Uh, it's powerful, uh, it's cultural, it's academic, but it's written in a way that will give us the ammunition as a culture, as people, uh, to be able to see that we are represented in the text, uh, mm. but not only just represented, uh, but we're leading uh, in places in the text that uh, our European American uh, and IE white scholars would make us think we have no presence or voice. So mm. I'm telling you, it's a great book. Black Lives Matter to Jesus. Wow. That's a powerful sounding book right there. Absolutely. And that's all, I mean, that that would spawn a whole other podcast, let me tell you, because when we start, <laughs> start getting into um, um, hit, hit the real history of Black people and, and where they came from and their place in, in religion and, and, I mean, that's a whole thing that we, we could... That's right. You know, so that, that my mother used to like remind me of many many times and when so you know um this was this was you know i'm i'm glad somebody is 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 um is mindfully out there reminding us of we still got work to do yeah know? and um and, and and putting us on a path, the, the right path towards getting where we need to be. And I appreciate all the work you're doing. Um, and when your book, it, so is your book available uh, yet? Yeah, so uh, it'll be available for pre-release through the bookshop uh, on March 29th. Oh. Uh, it, it releases on uh, May 13th, my birthday. Uh, right. to Amazon and the global marketplace. So uh, my birthday, you can order it anywhere uh, where books okay. are sold. And then, of course, on the 29th, uh, there's a pre-release. Uh, I'm actually doing a pre-release uh, uh, book signing in North Carolina. I've been asked to come and be a part of a forum at T.D. Jake's um, International Leadership Summit. Uh, and so I'm going to just do a pre-advanced wow. uh, okay. book release there. So, yeah. Well, that's see now you can get you can everybody knows what to get you for your birthday and that's <laughs> that's buy my book. <laughs> I know that's right. That's right. You're like Man. you don't know what to get me. Buy my book. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. exactly. Oh man. Well, no, this sir. was this was this conversation was wonderful. Yeah, this was great. Oh. Yeah. Thank y'all so much. Uh, very engaging. Thank y'all for uh, pushing me to uh, go beyond the limits. Uh, I really appreciate just the interaction and just the freedom just to be me. So if nothing else, thank y'all for letting me do that. So keep up the good fight. Keep up. And everybody, um, make sure if you want to follow what he's doing, keep up. Learn when the book's out. Learn some more. Actually, your 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 article. There's an article on your um, blog that I'm going to yeah. send to my sister, which was the one <laughs> about uh, black women in business. Um, mm. 
definitely going to send that to her because this is right up her alley. Um, uh, everyone, you should check out kedwinbryant.com. And, um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of stuff up there you can read, man. I mean, like just some really um, smart stuff going on up there and i appreciate your joining us on the show today to share your and you know please please feel free to come back whenever you like you know and let and let us know so kind of let's keep 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 us updated on all the good work you're doing oh absolutely if you're ever in new york let us know or philadelphia philadelphia So where in North Carolina are you going? Are you are you going to be? Where's Charlotte. Charlotte. Okay, that's my hometown. Charlotte. Yeah. Okay. Charlotte Convention Center. That's mm-hmm. where we'll be. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank y'all well, so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I guess that's going to wrap it up for us. Um, if anyone wants to connect with Akbar, they can find him on LinkedIn. And uh, for me, you can check me out on Instagram. I'm posting stuff all the time. I don't even know what I'm posting. (laughs) Um, But I'm on there posting stuff. But more importantly, please, please, please support and listen and subscribe. And if you're on um, Spotify, you can like us now. Um, They have the like feature on there now. So you can just hit the star, 12 million show. Um, And I guess that's going to wrap it up for us today. Another episode of 12 Million. I am Darren Jenkins. I'm Alcormy G. And this was 12 Million. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.